This is The Lisa Show with Lisa Valentine Clark and Richie T. Does the water you drink come from the French Alps? Is it filtered through volcanic rock in Fiji? Or is it remineralized with three different minerals? Does it really matter? And yes, all three of those examples are claims from bottled water companies about where their water came from. There are a surprising number of conflicting opinions on what kind of water you should drink. Water can't just be water anymore. It has to be alkaline or non-fluorinated, or the six to eight glasses you drink a day don't even count. Today, we want to get to the bottom of the water trend and find out which water is really the best for you. Whether you drink water out of a bottle, a filter, or the tap, let's find out what the deal is. Scott Miller is a fifth-year doctoral student at the Berkeley Water Center. He and his colleagues run the podcast, What Are You Talking About?, which is the best name for a podcast I've come across in a long time. Scott joins us today by telephone to help explain the effects of different types of water. Welcome, Scott. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, thank you so much for coming and being with us today. I really want to get down to the central question, which is which water is really better for you, tapped, filtered, or bottled water? Now, this really gets down to what you're looking for in your water. You know, I am a water treatment engineer, so at the end of the day, I'm really biased towards tap water. I don't drink bottled water at all unless I'm, you know, somewhere like in another country or out in the wilderness or something. We bring on some extra bottled water. Like tap water is very well monitored by your water utilities, and it's regulated by the Environmental Protection Agency as opposed to bottled water, which is actually monitored by the FDA. Mm -hmm. Um, And they monitor your water actually very differently. And your tap water is monitored more frequently and for more contaminants than, say, bottled water. Really? Um, So there's more regulations for tap water than bottled water? That's right, yes. And bottled water is a product. It's like anything else (laughs) that you can buy. It's like a car. It's like food. And it can get recalled. But that, you know, bottled water doesn't get recalled sometimes for months after, you know, sitting on a shelf and after people have drunk it, whereas tap water will be recalled immediately if your water utility is doing the right thing. So in general, is tap water in the U.S. healthy to drink? What are the current regulations, like the specific ones that tap water has to meet? So, yes, your tap water in general, water can be a little tricky because I come from the standpoint of being part of a large water utility. So I'm here in Berkeley in the East Bay of San Francisco. Our water utility provides water to, you know, a million people. Other people rely on, you know, groundwater and private wells. And so private wells are regulated in a different way. And you actually need to check your own water and have people come out if you have like a private well. So for the rest of this program, I'm going to talk from the standpoint of like being part of a larger water utility, okay. at which point water in the U.S. is very, very safe to drink. The EPA, if I remember correctly, regulates something like 90 different contaminants in your water. And that covers things like microbial pathogens. It covers radionucleotides. It covers pesticides, fertilizers, and things called like inorganics, like nitrate, that can be very unhealthy for you. And so these are a lot of things for water utilities to um, to monitor for, but they do, and they do it all the time. And actually, you can get a monthly water report, and actually, you should be getting a monthly water report somehow from your local water utility that states all of these different contaminants what are their levels, and what are their regulated levels. So you can see firsthand, like, is my water safe or is it not? Like, that, that is something that you can know. Whereas bottled water, they don't have to tell you what's in the water. It's up to them to tell you if they want to. So a lot of it must have to do with marketing then, because I think the general consensus is, oh, well, if you have bottled water, say when you go to another country or you ordered bottled water out of the restaurant, it's better. There's that kind of perception. Where did that come from, do you think? It makes a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) Bottled water is one of the biggest scams, honestly, of the late 20th century and still ongoing today. Bottled water can tell you anything. It's just like any other product. And it really does come down to marketing. You know, I looked up some bottled water names recently and then looked up where they actually came from. Yeah. You know, guess where Everest water comes from? Everest water. It comes from Mount Everest. It comes from Mount Texas. I'm just saying it comes from the state of Texas. And Arctic spring water comes from Florida. There's no Arctic there. There's no Arctic. Last time I checked... (laughs) 
So they can make whatever claims because they're regulated by the FDA. Correct. And actually, so I think the FDA, in terms of how the marketing works, they do have a few things they need to follow. It's something like, um, this is actually hard for me to follow myself. So they have different names like artesian water, mm-hmm. mineral water, purified water, sparkling water, and spring water. And each one of those does actually have some sort of source that does associate with it. So an artesian water has to come from an artesian well. Layers of forest rock deep into the earth, usually like much cleaner. Purified water is produced a lot of times just from tap water that they put through like a distillation process or through reverse osmosis. What they're doing is, quote unquote, purifying the water, removing most of the impurities, and and then sometimes adding some minerals back in. So there are some like designations for how you can call your water it's just none of it really has to do with the safety of it at the end of the day. So reverse osmosis water, for example, it's not any healthier than tap water or safer? No. Yeah. And actually, so this is tricky question. But actually, I lived at a house with reverse osmosis built into the entire house. The yeah, I've heard of that. And it's a very popular trend right now. Yeah, it's becoming so. And I'm actually a huge not fan (laughs) of what's going on there. So reverse osmosis, it's a great treatment process. I actually use it in my own work, and I think we might talk about that in a little bit. But reverse osmosis is really trying to remove almost everything from your water. But the problem is we're human. We're like other animals. We drink water for a reason, and it's not just to get the dihydrogen monoxide. It's not just to get the actual liquid into our body. Water has minerals. It has things like sodium, calcium, potassium, magnesium, and all of these minerals and these salts help to give us a proper mineral balance in our body. These things help us maintain hormones, help us build bones, they help our heart beat properly. And the thing is reverse osmosis removes like 60 to like 90 plus percent of these elements. And then downstream, you might put back in like, you know, sodium and and magnesium and calcium or something, you know, three of Mm -hmm. them. But your, your water has like dozens of these things that are really actually like important for your body. Like if you drank pure reverse osmosis water, you mm-hmm. actually will leach these into your own like urine and you'll pee it out. So, you know, reverse osmosis is something people need to be pretty careful about because normal water with minerals is really good for you. But I think the health science is still like a little out whether or not like drinking, you know, distilled or reverse osmosis water is actually bad for you. Um, well, well, I just chose not to. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what about the filters? And you mentioned this a little bit, but let's say that you're using a filtered water system or using a filter through your tap water that add back minerals like calcium, potassium, and magnesium. So are they helping you at all? Yes. So the thing is, unless you're using a Brita filter, like, you know, something that's kind of like charcoal based, you're not going to remove any minerals from your water. So you don't actually really need to add back any in because most water that's sourced from anywhere will have plenty of minerals. Mm -hmm. And so if you're using reverse osmosis, though, you do want to add those minerals back in. Most importantly, because if you don't, you're going to leach like metals from your pipe. So that's like kind of the critical piece here. And so but for your own like body health, it'd be very important to have some sort of like, I think they might call them like ionization filters or something. But yeah, like a mineral filter to add these things back in after reverse osmosis. Like definitely, definitely have one of those. Well, let's talk about the alkaline water trend. What is that about? And does it actually have any real health benefits? No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Also another marketing ploy by water companies. And so I had actually not heard of this craze. I went onto YouTube and started watching some videos about this and people are pulling, you know, 12 different bottles of water off the shelf. And they're like, we're going to put a pH, you know. Yeah, look at the colors of this pH. It's a visual, yeah, (laughs) show for sure. It's like yellow is like, you know, acidic and blue is basic. And then green is like. And for our listeners, some proponents say that this water can neutralize acid in your bloodstream or help prevent cancer and heart disease. They make these huge claims, but there's not a lot of research to back that up, is there? No, there's completely not. So the the pH of your blood is something around like three. And so a pH scale works generally from a scale of like zero to 14. And going from like one to two is actually going 10 times more concentrated in like acidity or basicity. So like the pH of your blood is something like three. And like normal water that's just completely neutral is like seven. And going from three to seven is something like a thousand-fold increase or a 10,000-fold increase. So if you're drinking, like, alkaline water, 
it's not going to do anything to your body. It's going to hit your stomach, and your stomach is also, actually, no, the pH of your blood is probably not three. I think that's your stomach. And so if you drink alkaline water into your stomach, your stomach is so acidic, it's just going to completely turn that water acidic immediately, and that will never touch your blood. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's the way it works. (laughs) Okay, so we've tackled a couple of different trends, but what about the most popular bottled water? What are the benefits and drawbacks to drinking bottled water? I've heard that plastics can leach into the water, especially if it gets hot. Is there any truth to that? I think that used to be a big problem. You know, there was like the bottles with BPA and, you know, if you left them out in the sun, they definitely would like start leaching. But I think that um, recently, like bottles are actually built of better plastics that don't leach kind of these compounds that have problems with upsetting your hormonal balance in your body like BPA does. And I think that recently the government has instituted kind of a shelf life of forever for Mm. bottled water. So I think something shifted recently where it's actually much more safe in terms of like um, plastics getting into your water. But they are also starting to find that it's not just chemicals from the plastic leaching in, it's that there's like physical plastic that's leaching from the bottle into the water. So there's like pieces of plastic that are like sometimes the size of your hair and it's just floating around in the water. There's actually like plastic everywhere. There's plastic in your beach. There's plastic in your lake. They know that there's negative side effects of physical plastic being drank by fish, but there's absolutely really no research, I think, on like the impact of drinking pieces of plastic on humans. You could surmise that it's bad, but um, (laughs) the science is still out. But in terms of like, you know, drinking and concentrations, Uh, plastics influencing your hormones, I think it's okay now. Okay. That's (laughs) a lot of research needs to be, to to be done. It sounds like on that, but common sense tells me don't drink plastic. Yeah. (laughs) Is fluorinated water safe? Is it beneficial? I know it's very controversial. So how much of the country's tap water is fluorinated and what is your opinion on that uh, based on your research? So fluoride very, um, It is very controversial. To me, it's completely safe. So some of the problems that come around fluoride, actually, let's back up. So the context is we add fluoride into our drinking water because it's found to be the cheapest way for people to get it in their diet. And what fluoride does is it helps to prevent tooth decay. And so on the flip side is if you get too much fluoride, you can have this thing called fluorosis happen to you. And that's some sort of problem where your bones become more brittle. Something like fluoride starts replacing calcium or something. And so that's definitely a problem. But at the level water treatment plants add fluoride to their water. They add it on a concentration of about like 0.7 to like one milligram per liter. And so people have been drinking that for like decades and decades by now. And I think around like two-thirds of the U.S. population drinks water with fluoride in it. But something like less than 5% of the people are drinking water above the recommended levels by like the U.S. Public Health Service. And so the thing here is that fluoride can occur naturally. So if you're drinking water from like a groundwater well, you might be having like, you know, a natural fluoride concentration that's above what the U.S. Public Health Service. For other people who drink, you know, like pristine, you're like mountain water, that water won't have fluoride levels really very high at all. And so water utilities using kind of like more pristine waters will actually add fluoride up to the recommended concentration by the U.S. Public Health Service that will actually help people but it won't hurt them. Like dentists love it. <laughs> like most dentists love mm-hmm. it because it's really a utilitarian way to ensure people get fluoride. You know, if you're from um, like an underprivileged community and like you don't see a dentist very often, you don't get fluoride treatment. You know, maybe you don't like brush your teeth enough, you know, and like there's fluoride toothpaste. Fluoride will just come into your body through the tap water. And then you kind of have this like low concentration of fluoride in your saliva all day long. And that helps to remineralize your teeth while all your like dental plaque bacteria are trying to destroy it. <laughs> so, so it's, it's good. Fluoride so is great. Fluoride's a good idea. Well, what makes water taste different? And in your opinion, what's the best tasting water? For example, I grew up in Nebraska. The water we drank came from underground. And then I moved to Utah. The water tasted a lot different. I lived in Europe. The water there tasted a lot different. What is it that I'm tasting <laughs> that changes the flavor? Right. This is actually another really big reason why some people prefer bottled water. 
Um, and it's because maybe they moved and like they're not used to the water where they moved and they find a bottled water that has the right amount of everything that's very similar to their home. And so what, water is a really interesting thing. And I actually had to read up on this because I was like, I don't actually know. I, I drink, I've drank water from everywhere. And I've certainly, I come from Minnesota and in Minnesota during the springtime, all the snow melts and all the, you know, gross things that have built up over the year end up in the river and then the river <laughs> is used to make our drinking water and then so you start getting these like algal fishy earthy flavors during the spring and it's really gross you know and i was like this is actually very disgusting why can't we fix it and eventually the water treatment plant there built basically a giant brita filter at the drinking water treatment plant and complaints went down by like 10 times during springtime for these like nasty earthy moldy fishy flavors and so Everywhere you go, water's going to be very different. And most of water's taste is actually from its smell. And when you're drinking the water, that aroma ends up in your nose. And then you're perceiving a flavor, but it's actually something like a, a compound made by algae. Or you might be smelling like chloramines, which is something that's formed when bleach reacts with like organics in your water. You know, you could get something that's kind of like that dirty pool smell. That's called a chloramine. You can get metallic flavors. You know, a lot of houses have copper pipes. And in those situations, you know, just a little bit of like copper concentration, like you might be able to like taste something like that. But otherwise, like in terms of minerals and salt, you can actually get a faux bitter flavor where you drink your water and then you'll be actually noticing a difference in like mineral concentrations, but your saliva actually has minerals in it already. So if you drink bottled water that's like reverse osmosis treated, your mouth suddenly is like, oh, my God, there's no minerals in my mouth. And so you'll taste bitter, which is really interesting. Well, it's amazing um, how many different components go into what's happening when you taste water, which is, you know, <laughs> odorless and tasteless. Finally, very quickly, what type of water do you drink? I drink tap water and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I drink like probably three liters a day, actually. I'm a huge, huge fan. I don't drink juices anymore. I sometimes drink, you know, some milk, but mostly just water. I really like the water that is produced here. Tap um, water from the expert. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Scott Miller is a fifth year doctoral student at the Berkeley Water Center. He and his colleagues run the podcast, What Are You Talking About? Thank you for listening to The Lisa Show. We'll be right back. No one likes a fake friend. We want intimate friends we can trust, talk to, rely on. People who will understand us, people who will laugh with us. But in an age of Facebook friends and Instagram followers and superficiality, how do we deepen these forms with sincere connections, sincere friendships. Well, joining us today is friendship expert Shasta Nelson. Shasta's authored a lot of books about friendship. She's also the founder of GirlfriendCircles.com. She was uh, Facebook's media spokesperson and friendship expert for Friends Day in 2018. She's with us to talk about going beyond the superficial and really connecting with people we call our friends. Welcome, Shasta. Thank you. That's such a great topic. Love it. I love it. It's a great topic because we all want deeper connections. We're being told all the time uh, through research and science that, you know, it's it's the connection that's important, not the number of Facebook friends and things that you have. Um, and in your book, this really got our attention. You talk about how most of us probably have intimacy gaps in our life. So talk about what some of examples of intimacy gaps we might have. Yeah, it's such a great awareness. When I've been studying loneliness, a lot of people didn't identify with it initially because they were like, oh, no, I'm around people all day or I have yeah. great people skills or I have friends. And we actually have a hard time sometimes identifying that feeling of recognizing that we're lonely and it's not from lack of interaction, but it's from lack of intimacy. Mm -hmm. And we know that when we can say, you know, wow, I don't know who to call and share this part of me with, or I don't feel like this part of me is being seen, or I don't know that I feel completely safe in these relationships, or would they really be there for me if I really really needed them. Um, and so we start feeling like I could, I have people to go socialize with, or I mm -hmm. have what we'd call a fun group or, you know, golf group or a girls night out or something. And I know people from work and I'm friendly, but like the question is how loved and supported 
do you feel? And when you ask yourself that question and, and saying, wow, I could use a little more love in that, in that place, that's where that's the intimacy gap. It's us saying, I want something that feels a little closer, a little safer, a little more enjoyable. Yeah. So did you coin the phrase frentimacy? I did because I was on a campaign for a couple of years to just talk about how we need more intimacy in our lives outside of romance. But of course, every time I use the word intimacy, no yeah. matter how I kept trying, they were like, <laughs> sex, sex. And I was like, no, no. And I was like, no, that's the whole point is that that's not, those are not synonymous. We need so much more intimacy, platonic intimacy in our lives. So finally, I coined the word <laughs> to yeah. open a new folder in our head. So, so tell people how you define frentimacy. So frentimacy is any relationship where two people both feel seen in a safe and satisfying way. And so um, we can have different levels of that. And I teach different uh, kind of depths of that. We would want that in all healthy friendships, even on lower levels of relationships. We want to both feel seen. Uh, we want to understand each other. We want to feel like we get each other, that we feel witnessed. We want to have fun together. We want it to be satisfying, to be enjoyable, uh, to laugh, to get the reward of friendship. And that third thing is we want it to feel safe. We need it to feel trustworthy. We need it to feel reliable. We need to feel like it's consistent and there. So those are the three three things that we measure the health of any relationship by. And so uh, we want vulnerability, we want positivity, and we want consistency. And those three things together make up that definition of we both want to feel seen in a safe and satisfying way. So if we both want us to, we both want these things, and then what keeps us from, from having them and having deepening frentimacy? It's a great question, and I've been surveying you know, thousands and thousands of people on this, and I have a frentimacy quiz that I have on my website if anyone's interested in doing that at ShastaNelson.com, mm -hmm. and it will ask you to take you know, kind of an inventory of your friendships and how you show up in your friendships, and we'll give you a score in positivity, consistency, and vulnerability, because the answer to your question is it depends on, it's different for each of us. For some of us, we have high consistency and high positivity, which mm -hmm. means we see each other regularly and we have fun together, but if for like for a lot of men's friendships specifically, we've modeled and taught men to do friendship in that way, but they often lack vulnerability. We have not done a really great job of giving permission, modeling, and encouraging vulnerability in men's friendships. And so that would be the area that would need to be increased to make the biggest difference, perhaps for some relationships. Um, other relationships, uh, we have a lot of relationships where it might be high in consistency and high in vulnerability, where we are, we know a lot about each other and we've shared a lot and mm -hmm. we are interacting a lot, but we like the positivity has dropped out. It feels draining. It feels exhausting. We're not having fun. It's like just been hard. It's, it's uh, depressing. <laughs> and so we need to actually increase the positivity in our relationships. So you, when you start seeing all three, the question then becomes, what will help uh, Lisa improve her friendships might look different than what Richie needs to do, which is look different than what Shasta needs to do. Yeah. And it's really the bigger question is which of these three positivity, consistency, or vulnerability would make the biggest difference if you were to focus on that and, and build that up in your friendships. But certainly during life, you know, you have different uh, things to give, different kind amounts of time or positivity or, you know, you know, your, yeah. your, our lives uh, feel you know, full in these areas, even if we know an area is lacking, but we maybe uh, are not in the in the in the right uh, maybe mind frame or commitment to do it. Why should we still make an effort? Why does it matter? Yeah, it matters so much, and I just get, this gets me on my soapbox. I could do like <laughs> an up. hour. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a hand. I'll give you a hand. Come on, get come on I'm up like, there. Be careful what you're offering, Richie. I could be up there for an hour, being like, "Here's all the research." Well, no, you don't have an hour. <laughs> it's like it's truly, and I'm not exaggerating here. When we look at the studies from a health perspective, there is very few things that matter, if anything, maybe sleep. But even your sleep is improved by healthy relationships. Like loneliness messes up your sleep. But uh, beyond that, relationships, like when you look at what, what helps you survive cancer, relationships, more than uh, any other factor. When we look at what helps reduce stress, relationships. When we look at longevity, relationships. When we look at mental health, relationships, immune systems, relationships. And across the board, we've been told that it's our health, that it's, our, it's related to our diet and doing more sit-ups and doing kale smoothies. <laughs> you know, we have a whole list wow. of things that we think are really important. And uh, truly, if you have healthy lifestyle habits and feel 
feel connected, those are the best combination. But there's studies out there that show if you have to choose between those two, if you have to choose between taking care of your loneliness and taking doing healthy lifestyle habits, mm-hmm. you're better off dealing with the, the, with the loneliness. Hmm. That is doing wow. more damage. To feel lonely or disconnected damages your health the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's twice as harmful as being obese and it's the, does the equivalent damage on your body as being a lifelong alcoholic. So across the board, wow. you're, this is this is the issue and I'm just shocked that we haven't talked about this more and really, 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 really believe the research because the data is super clear. We're talking with Shasta Nelson about the importance of uh, of friendships, of, of relationships, of connectivity with those around us. I want to not necessarily push back, but most of this nation is lonely. Mm-hmm. You know, when you talk statistics, I think they say mm-hmm. that we went from a, a standard of like 2.7 friends to like 1.6 friends mm-hmm. or something like mm-hmm. that. There are probably a lot of people listening to this who, if they, if you ask them, who are your friends, would not be able to answer a single name. What what can those people do? Like how how do, as adults, do we now nurture these relationships uh, that we haven't for a long time or create friendships that that don't even exist? Yes, it's a, such an important question. And you are right. Right now we're showing about half of us are saying we don't even know who we would confide in if we want. Like we don't have somebody to confide in. So absolutely, the loneliness is palpable um, in our country and in a lot of Western countries. And actually we're seeing it just in more and more countries. So the most important thing that we need to be doing is looking at who we know already, even if you don't know them well, even if they're loose ties, like where can you show up in your life more consistently to help strengthen some of those ties? And so very few of us are going to be really excited about initiating dinners out with people we don't know and like making big plans. Mm -hmm. So the easiest thing to do, because consistency is one of the three requirements of healthy relationships, the most important and easy thing we can do is figure out who we are already consistent with, like at work, at church, at um, at our kids' school, at that association that we're part of, and and or decide where we want to be consistent and say, okay, I'm going to join that network. I'm going to join that that uh, sports group. I'm going to join that. Uh, community there. And I'm going to be consistent for the purpose of building relationships. And eventually, we need to build our relationships and increase our consistency outside of those networks. We want to do that one-on-one. But initially, the most important thing you can do is commit to being somewhere consistently. And then once you're starting to see the same faces over and over and over, that's where you can start bringing in the other two requirements of all relationships, which is positivity. So what can I do to to express gratitude to this person? How can I give compliments? What can I do to bring laughter? What what kindness can I show? What, uh, what's, you know, how can I remember their name and make them feel good? So yeah, we want to bring the joy and the positivity. And then that third thing is vulnerability. We want to start asking questions and being curious about their lives and starting to get to know them. And we want to make sure we're sharing a little bit about ourselves and we want to pick up on that next time and like get to know them a little bit more. And so I can guarantee anybody that if you practice the three requirements of relationship, positivity, consistency, and vulnerability, we can guarantee you will bond with people. There's, it doesn't even matter who the people are at the end of the day. You don't have to be so judgmental about do, do our lives look the same? Do we have enough in common? At the end of the day, if you practice these three things, you will feel closer to people and you will bond. Uh, it seems to me that consistency is is what you are proposing is the first step for those who may think, ah, you know, I'm an adult and it, it and and I'm trying to find more friends as an adult. It, would that be it correct is. and assume? So, it so is. as we are looking, uh, you know, of, of who to invest that in or you know, who to reciprocate that with, can you talk a little bit more about the qualities of a great friend? Yeah, I mean, we could just keep it easy and say the qualities of a great friend are somebody who does these three requirements. I mean, it's somebody who's showing up in your life that you can rely on. Um, it's somebody who at the beginning of that showing up doesn't have to mean, you know, it shouldn't mean, uh, doing everything for you and showing up when, uh, right. when everything, but, but it just means simply <laughs> like day. putting the phone down and looking at you when we're talking, it means like smiling and making eye contact, you know, it's like being reliable in that interaction. Um, and it's somebody who practices positivity. And I really want to clarify positivity does not mean what we're talking about. It doesn't mean we only talk about positive things, but it means how do we leave the other person feeling after our interaction? Mm. And the research shows we have to have five positive interactions for every negative feeling or interaction in order to keep a relationship healthy. So our job is to make a lot more, a lot more deposits than withdrawals. And, um, and then somebody who's willing to be seen that vulnerability piece, you know, can we ask questions? Can we share ourselves? And at the end of the day, that is what makes for a healthy friend, all the rest of it 
is honestly examples of how we do those three things. So some of us might mm-hmm. say, I, lo- I want a funny friend. Well, that's right. an example of positivity. I mean, so we would say, I want a friend who's there for me. Well, that's an example of consistency. You know, So everything else when we talk about what we want in friendship is an example or an outcome of one of these three things. Hey, Shasta, how do you do with this? You know, it, relationships ebb and flow. And it's amazing <laughs> when I'm writing a book and I'm talking about certain friendships. Yeah. And then, you know, eight, eight, nine months later, when the book's coming back in my lap for editing, and I'm just like, oh, wait, that person's moved away. And I'm not that close anymore. Like, oh, wait, this person. And it's so funny to see the the ebb and flow of relationships. So I'm very, very, very committed to my friendships. And uh, I don't think you can read the research and not be practicing it as much as you possibly can. And I live in a transient area in San Francisco hmm. where people move away. And I'm like considering making people sign contracts that they're going to stay here, <laughs> be my friend for 10 years. Well, how do you deal with so. that though? Of, of You may be committed to consistency and vulnerability yes. and positivity, but yes. that doesn't necessarily mean everyone else in your life is. How do you yes. adjust to that sort of ebb and flow as you call it, or, you know, people going through different phases of their lives, whatever you want to call it. Yep. Yep. No, I, I think it's important to have, I'm very much a person somebody who teaches that we need to have a circle of friends because anytime you're expecting every one person to be there, it's just too vulnerable of a relationship. Like right. they is fragile. People move, they go through stuff. They're caring for aging parents. They're having kids. And so I'm often somebody who's quick to say, if you're starting to feel resentful toward a friend for mm-hmm. not being there for you, it's often not a sign that she's or he is a bad friend, but it's often a sign that you don't have enough friends. And so that we really do need to have a, you know, my goal is to have five to 10 friends who are the relationships that we are journeying life together. And those might not be all 10 that I'm confiding in on a regular basis, but they're people that I could and that I would be there for. And so it's, there is an ebb and flow that certain mm-hmm. times there's a couple people that I might be closer to and see more frequently. Um, but yeah, my goal is to have a healthy community of people that I can rely on and, and that they can rely on me and that we're really showing up in that way. But it is, it's tricky. We live in a world that does not, we live in a world right now that is not oriented to relationships being what we need the most, even though the research keeps showing that we are very much caught up in productivity and consumerism and uh, achievement. And we keep thinking those are the things that are going to make us, leave us feeling happiest and most proud at the end of the day. And, um, and we always know, we always, everyone always says on your deathbed, the things you regret, like we know it, but we don't know it. (laughs) We aren't really living our lives like we believe the data. Do you think that the deeper the connection, that the longer the friendship will last? Typically, yes. So here's two statistics that are interesting. One is that we are replacing half our close friends every seven years. So that means uh, if you, if you, Lisa, were confiding in five or six people right now that you kind of felt like were the people you were closest to, chances sure. are high that two or three of them were not the people you were calling and confiding in seven years ago. Yeah. And chances are high that seven years from now, you might be confiding in somebody you haven't even yet met. That's you know? really and interesting because so, yeah, looking so. back, <laughs> I can look back and say, yeah, absolutely, that, that has happened. Yeah. And, and, and there's different feelings, right, of like regret or or mm-hmm. confusion about, well, why is that? But when you kind mm-hmm. of accept it as sort of the ebb and flow in life, then it makes the future not seem so like, oh, who will be there? Who won't? Yeah. Right? So so to some degree, when your question is like the people I'm closest to, will they last the longest? Yeah. And I would say it depends on if you're closest to them in one context. If you're only closest to them when we're at work or because our kids are on the same volleyball team or because we go to the same church or we live in the same neighborhood, mm-hmm. then those relationships are probably not as likely to make it once that context changes. So once we no longer work at the same job, live in the same neighborhood, have our kids on the same team, then those relationships are often the ones that don't survive the long term. The ones who survive the long terms are the ones who have practiced being friends outside of one context so that even if we don't work together anymore, we're still used to getting together and going hiking. And even if our kids aren't on the same team, that's okay because we still like each other and we're not only we're not relying on only seeing each other at the games. We're actually getting together and doing stuff as families, yeah. you know? So those are the relationships that will make it. Um, yeah, we want, and the other statistic I was going to share with you yeah. just came out of university of Kansas a year ago. And I find it fascinating that, uh, a researcher did study there to identify how long it took to feel close to somebody. And people self-reported when they moved to a new area, it took 50 hours, roughly five zero to go from a stranger to what they would call a casual friend. And then it took 80 to a hundred hours before they said they, we felt like we were friends and then 200 hours before somebody felt like they were best friends. Wow! And so I know, so I, those were higher numbers than I expected, but I've always been teaching that we, that it takes time to get to know each 
each other. Even if you instantly know you want to be friends, you still have to put in the hours to get to know each other and build your pattern and figure that all out. So I'm a big fan of like, once you've made that investment with somebody, if you've already put in a hundred, 150 hours, like you're way better off, like, (laughs) like taking care of that investment than going and starting over all the time. (laughs) Uh, Shasta, one more question before we let you go. Um, in an effort for me to be a healthier individual, will you be my friend? <laughs> you have to put in the timer. She didn't uh, you just listen, listen was, to what she said. You got to put in like two hundred hours. I know. I was going to say, are you flying here? Are we doing right. lunch or what? <laughs> well, it depends very much on your answer right now. <laughs> well, I can promise you this: we can always be friendly with each other, and if you want to hang out with me, then we can develop a friendship. That is a wise, <laughs> wise answer. Shasta Nelson is a friendship expert, author of Friendtimacy: How to Deepen Friendships for Lifelong Health and Happiness, and and founder of GirlfriendCircles.com. Thanks for being with us, Shasta. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much. You're listening to The Lisa Show. When was the last time that you thought about discovery and curiosity? Curiosity is natural to every child. I mean, everyone's born with it. And keeping this part of us alive, even as adults, will help keep us current and youthful. Now, listen, we know everyone is looking for the next new you know, fountain of youth. So how do you actually do it? How do you cultivate this attitude of discovery if you already know what you like, you know? <laughs> so we've invited John Sovic, a therapist, good friend of the Lisa Show, to help us walk through this idea and have a good conversation about it. Uh, Thanks for being here, John. Thank you. And I hope you and I together discover some really cool stuff this morning. I love this attitude. I feel like this is the best way to have conversations in real life anyway. Honestly, instead of coming in like with our own agendas, but, you know, discovering things together. We talk a lot about creativity in sort of um, broad terms, right? And 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 so I'm wondering t- to you when you talk about an attitude of discovery or what does it mean to really like live in this space? What do you mean? Well, I have two definitions for you. One of them comes from my yogic background, which is really approaching life with a beginner's mind. Oftentimes, we get really caught up in the fact that we've seen everything, we've done everything, we know everything, we're jaded, we've read it, we've seen it on TV, we've seen someone else do it. And we move into these places where we shut down our ability to just be curious about our world. You know, I took my dog for a walk this morning. And at 6 a.m., the, you know, the sun's coming up. I'm in my beginner's mind. Uh-huh. And I get to notice, like, the hummingbird that flew in, like, over the bush. And we paused for a while. I get to be curious, like, mm-hmm. why does my dog keep going for that one bush? And then I realize there's, you know, a McDonald's wrapper under there. Sure. <laughs> but that beginner's mind, bringing that curiosity into the simplest things of life, allows me to stay fresh and energized and intrigued by my world. The other definition, and this one I love sharing with people because it was such a cool discovery. Um, Anne Rice, Interview with a Vampire. You uh-huh. remember those books? Oh, yeah. So in the first book, there is a moment where they go over to Paris and they're the Paris vampires. And they're like underneath the ground in the mausoleum. And they talk about that a lot of the, lot of the old vampires had gone crazy. Mm-hmm. But there are a handful of them that did not. And when they asked them what the difference was, is that the ones that did not go crazy, that kept themselves, were the ones who stayed current, the ones who huh. were constantly learning and growing as society changed. Now, if you think of that context, that they were living hundreds of years at the time, yeah. you see how important that would be? Oh, yeah. Um, and I, that stuck with me at such a young age when I first <laughs> read that book, that it's been with me for the rest of my life, this idea of that even as we age, that if we remain curious, we remain connected, we remain vital. And that to me is where that fountain of youth piece comes in. Okay, so we we assume that this is something that we all lose as we get older. And if you spent any time with little kids, you know that they they just have it in spades, right? That that they are curious about everything and, and the questions and how they approach life. And somewhere along the line, we, we dull it. Um, and, and there's probably many reasons for that, but I think that it is worth our time to to really bring to light some of those reasons why we might suppress it so that that if we are trying to look to reignite it, um, that we'll know wh- where to go. So where does that come from? W- what do you see? What I notice a lot with the clients that I work with is that often that, that loss of our curiosity, that dulling down of ourselves mm-hmm. and our, our spirit and our being 
comes from really getting stuck in the routine of our lives where we, you know, find ourselves, you know, constantly stuck in our commute and, you know, not really listening to anything new or exciting like the Lisa show. That, you know, we have to maintain and fix the broken appliances. We have to, you know, take care of the family stuff where yeah. we find our relief in watching TV and eating a bag of chips while we do it and going into that doing nothing phase that the routines of our lives tend to pacify us and shut down our curiosity. And if you've ever been through, you know, any type of, you know, emotional journey, such as depression, you, you find yourself sinking deeper and deeper and deeper into those types of things. It's like, yeah, I binge watch something, you yeah. know, for 12 episodes. And those types of things are what shut down our curiosity in the world. Mm. They tend to make us go very small and very fearful. And what this curiosity thing does is it opens a doorway to actually look outside and see the beauty of the world around us. Oh, I love that. Um, I want to just echo a couple of things that you said, that the routines sometimes pacify our curiosity and, and keep our minds sort of small and fearful. What is that connection then? I, I guess maybe I hadn't thought about it in that way, between fear and, and curiosity. We are often fed information that the world around us is a scary place. If you think about it, you know, less than, you know, 7,500 years ago, the world around us is a place that we, we, we looked at for survival. It is how we, you know, found our food, how we found our living space. And what's happened, which is so fascinating, is as we've become, quote unquote, more civilized, mm -hmm. we have become more dependent on the systems around us. We're going to deep philosophy now, just travel. I like it. I know. I'm, I'm become, here for it. We've, we've become really dependent on these external systems around us. But what that has also done is made us fearful of the actual world that we live in. Um, I remember once I was leading a retreat. Um, it was up in the mountains, and we were bringing a bunch of people who were dealing with some terminal illness up into the mountains. Mm -hmm. And for many of them, it was the first time they had ever actually been in the mountains, been outdoors, felt that energy of wilderness around them. And what we started finding is they were fearful to go out of their cabins because they didn't understand what was there. And for me, because huh. I had been raised like, you know, camping and hiking and all that stuff. Sure. Like, oh, it's beautiful outside. Come on, everybody. And what we had to do is to encourage them to understand that this world around them was actually very nurturing and, and it had space to give them energy to bring them out and then do the healing processes we were there for. So I think we've been hmm. taught that the world around us is so scary by like 24-hour news cycles and the idea that, you know, there's not enough or that, you know, we need to keep everything tight inside, that if we can actually go against that, let curiosity, as I said, open that doorway, step out, be a little bit curious. Maybe it's out the front door and meeting a neighbor for the first time. Maybe it's going out and experiencing something by taking a class at community college to find ways to encourage us simply to open that door. And once that curiosity gets sparked, most people, it, it's kind of addictive, to tell you the truth. Uh-huh. You know, it's interesting when you talk about curiosity and you've really laid it out about why it's so important and how we can really have this attitude of discovery and, and, and what gets in our way of doing that and how we it, it can make us feel a little bit more, uh, you know, fearful. Um, and, and we're talking with John Sovic, friend of the show and therapist, about about finding this curiosity again. Um, the, it, it really is the, the new fountain, one new meaning timeless <laughs> fountain of youth mm -hmm. and keeps us curious. I, I'm wondering what you think about um, about not only how we do this, like I, I appreciate you saying, you know, taking a class, meeting a new person, getting out there, seeing the beauty around you. For those who this is going to be very uncomfortable for them to get out of their comfort zones. For those who were thinking, I like my routine. I like my, you know, chips and <laughs> binge watching shows. <laughs> you know, like I don't know if I want to put that down. What would you say to them? I would say, let's just look at, you know, what we understand about the brain, the body, and our humanity. 
We know for a fact that in aging adults, that if they start to lose that curiosity, we look at neurological illnesses, we look at declining health, um, we look at it having an adverse effect on both our brain and our body. Also, too, that if we shut down our curiosity, we're going to lower our ability to actually continue learning and growing, and that's going to affect our intelligence. Um, we also understand that social relationships get affected by a lack of curiosity, that we tend to just be in like groups all the time, and that doesn't necessarily help us grow. It doesn't help us change. And when we're hiding out in that routine, we're going to be less likely to, you know, check back and be enthusiastic and talkative and confident and humorous with the people that we're hanging out with. And then finally, too, it really affects how we create happiness and a meaning in our life. Because what we understand is that when we look back at a life that has been simply controlled by routine, many people are like disappointed by what they have or have not achieved. But yeah. if we build a life that has a purpose, that's driven by this curiosity, interest, hobbies, passions tend to follow us wherever we go. We meet people, we read books, we experience sports, we grow skills, we have conversations like you and I are having hmm. that help us each to grow and change and we find passion as we experience in our life. So all of these things are really why this mm -hmm. idea of maintaining curiosity is important into our well-being. When you talk about these kinds of issues about discovery and creativity and 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 staying curious with open-ended questions, do you ever have people who push back and say you know, things like, well, I'm just, I've never been creative. I don't really use that part of my brain very much. I'm more analytical. And, and, and how do you sort of um, help them on board towards this idea of discovery? Well, I'm a pretty uh, sassy therapist at times. So sometimes we'll <laughs> Good. Say, this like, is why you're good to have this conversation with. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I'll say like, okay, cool. That's been so far. But what would you like to do going forward? Nice. I encourage people to explore being in this unfamiliar space of being in a little bit of discomfort because sometimes that uncertainty is really what helps us have excitement in our life. Yeah. I and mean, if you think about it, if you were a sports person and before you saw any game, you knew exactly what the score is going to be at the end, <laughs> would it make it exciting or interesting? Right. Nobody would watch. It would not. Yeah. So I help to point out to people that we actually, we love in uncertainty in certain frameworks. Hmm. And how can we bring that framework out into other places? You know, if it's exciting to not know what the score of the games could be for you to watch it, maybe be just as exciting you're going on a first date to not have a preconceived notion about that person. That maybe when we're going to a class to learn something, I remember my mom loved the Civil War. So when she was in her 80s, she took a class at the local college, you know, on, on really? war history. Wow. And, you know, she had visited so many of the sites and had so many experiences, but she walked in there just so curious to learn what she didn't already know or hadn't seen. And so that little, that little place of uncertainty, that little place where maybe a surprise will give us some more energy and some more intrigue in our world and lighten our step for the day. That's Teaching such an interesting idea. With that space. Well, you know, I hadn't thought about it before, but now that you say that, I, you know, when I was going through a very difficult time and, 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 and was very depressed, one of my friends uh, suggested a new hobby for me, and and I reluctantly did it, and it ended up being being just like the best thing, and and, and I ne I've never until this moment right now connected that like that idea of discovery and creativity with with you know with my emotions and 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 pulling me out of mm -hmm. that. That's interesting. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Just a different well, way to look at it. I really encourage I encourage people to do too. Um, this is another way to. Um, kind of spark this curiosity is I encourage people either like, you know, bring to life their inner Sherlock Holmes or <laughs> bring to life their, you know, internal like, um, like court reporter or um, like a reporter on the scene of something to start paying attention, to be curious. The thing that always fascinated me with the whole Sherlock Holmes, you know, story uh -huh. is that he would look between like the the tedium and the familiarity of those daily routines and notice those interesting things. Yeah. 
And so it's like, well, what if you go to this party and you imagine that you're a reporter who's going to make a, you know, write an article about the party? And that in, brings up your attention. It brings up a little bit of curiosity. Yeah. It allows you to play in a different way. And in that exploration, then all kinds of things can happen. Maybe you talk to someone at the party you would never have talked to otherwise because they look interesting or they had a group around them. And you're like, what's going on over there? I want to investigate that experience. And then when you're there, you find that, wow, they're speaking about stuff that's really intriguing to me. Suddenly you make a new friend, you make a new connection, or they spark something in you that starts to be a catalyst for new thoughts, new ideas and perspectives. And as you're growing and changing, I mean, that's how you regenerate. That's how you become that interesting vampire that has, has lived for hundreds and hundreds of years, right? I, I love that we're using I can that. I walk the streets of Paris, yeah. <laughs> and not go crazy. <laughs> that's how you do it. The new yeah. fountain of youth and the discovering. Thank you so much for an interesting conversation, for helping us discover new ways to stay, you know, really invested in life and, and curious and, and new. We, I, it's always a pleasure, John. Thank you so much. Thanks. It's been a light chatting with you, too. You can find out more about John and his work at johnsovic.com or following him on Twitter at John Sovic. Hop on over to The Lisa Show at byu.edu for a chance to make a connection. This is, you know, we want to be a little bit vulnerable mm -hmm. and just say we are very social people that work in radio. And so a lot of times we have to imagine the people that we're talking <laughs> to. We love to talk to people and make those real connections. And one way that we do that is by reading your emails and talking about uh, back and forth about what you like about the show or ideas that you have or an insight into your life and how it is affected by the sort of conversations that we have. I know it's a big ask or it seems like a big ask, but the Lisa show at BYU.edu is a great way for us to make a real connection. I'm not sure that I would ever have a friend named mm -hmm. Merlene, especially one as special as the Merlene that we have met mm -hmm. without the email. Uh, that we have asked you guys to send. The Lisa Show at BYU.edu. Now it's like we're friends. It's yeah. like I come in, I go, has Merlene emailed me? Yes, she has. What are we talking about? And I'll be honest, sometimes I go, I don't even know what we're talking about. And then I have to remember, oh yeah, we talked about that yesterday on the show. Yeah. Uh, it's The Lisa Show at BYU.edu. Whether it's a connection that you know builds a Merlene friendship of a lifetime or you just like to say, hey, you know what? I really appreciated when you guys spoke to Parenting teenagers, that's yeah. something that I'm really struggling mm -hmm. with. Or, you know, meal prepping has been something that I, I've always wanted to do but haven't understood the financial piece of it. Thank you for talking about that. We love hearing from, from any and everyone about that. It's The Lisa Show at BYU.edu. Sometimes, too, I think about the emails that we've gotten and it helps as we're making conversations so that I, I know, for instance, that Kimberly is listening and she listens to the show. She has a, a pie making business. Mm. And so she said, you know, she likes listening to the show because she puts the it on a podcast mm -hmm. while she her kids are asleep and she's making tons of pies. And so she's got this long process to do it. And for some reason, that just like makes me so happy warms my heart knowing that that we are it's like we're having this conversation in her kitchen and then I think of delicious pies is the reason why Kimberly's pies are so good <laughs> because we are being in her ears as she makes the pies can we own 0.001 percent yeah. I'll take that's credit. the secret ingredient it's a pinch <laughs> of the Lisa show but knowing those like little details is so rewarding and we want to make those connections the Lisa show at byu.edu Thank you for listening to The Lisa Show.